There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the people's voice on climate change. Yes, and it's episode number five and a special one, an interview that Mark did with Kat Copsey, Council at Port Phillip Council. Now, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how you found Kat Copsey and what she discussed in the interview? Yeah, absolutely, Rich. So I got introduced to Kat from Tim Baxter, who's got a previous interview with us. Mm-hmm. Kat and Tim are both Greens-affiliated city councillors on Port Phillip City Council. They're trying to do a lot of really exciting progressive things for Port Phillip here in Melbourne. Yep. I got introduced to Kat because we do have this big waste special that's coming out next week, and I was recommended to her as kind of the waste guru there on council. Yep. The deputy mayor there as well is referred to a bit as a, a waste expert, and I look forward to maybe talking to him as well. But Kat was very gracious and uh, willing to sit down and have a chat with me about sort of the challenges faced by councils about dealing with their waste. That's a fascinating interview. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Here's the interview with Kat Copsey. Commissioner Copsey, Catherine, Kat. Yes, Kat. Yes, thank you so much Kat. for sitting down with me uh, for our, our first meeting. So this is the first interview I've done, sort of full disclosure, without ever having met you before. <laughs> and here I am, just, and you're on tape. Five here minutes we go, in. off the top. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you're on the Port Phillips City Council. I got referred to you from Tim Baxter, whose yes. interview will already be up on the feed when people are listening to this. Can you tell me a bit about sort of your background and how you got onto council? What was your sort of road to being a councillor? Yeah, happy to. Well, I didn't start out thinking that I was going to be in local politics. That's it wasn't for sure. if I asked you no. when you were five, what do you want to be, Kat? No, I wanted to be in the circus. Oh, very good. Well, five. in a so way. Maybe. It's kind of close. No, um, so my background is actually I used to be a planning and environment lawyer. Okay. I practiced for four years in planning and environment law, a big commercial firm. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really for me. So I have also worked as a community organizer. And one of the things I was frustrated about when I was working in law is that often I would see decisions made and laws made that I thought were probably not the way forward. Mm -hmm. And so that got me passionate about community action. Um, And that's when I got involved in campaigning. And from that trajectory, I've, you know, put up my hand and stood for council and got elected in 2016. That's brilliant. So many of our Greens reps and MPs have actually come through from backgrounds in community campaigning. Not a political um, a, background, but a community active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people have come in through an activism path and, and have gotten involved in a local campaign and that was their first introduction to politics. So I just, like Christine Milne has her biography's been out recently or autobiography and it contains her story of how she got involved in a local campaign and basically ran a campaign with her neighbors against pulp mill and that was her foray into politics and that's how she got started so it's a bit of a a worn path uh, for Greens into into politics. Oh that's great because it can seem so alternative and just sort of 
luck of the draw otherwise to people who come in from more establishment background like yeah. oh, how did you happen to this but you as you said it's a well-worn path there's people you're taking the the lead from to follow that that's well great. and one of it's a core pillar for the greens as well is local democracy so we actually think that this is where change comes from change comes from communities mm-hmm. and then it gets fed up to our representatives so um, it's yeah it's a pretty core part of how we see the whole process working very good so you might not think you're from Getting involved in the community to being in, in council, you might not think it's a unique story, but it's, it's fascinating. I could talk to you about that for hours. But what got you started at the community level first? What got you interested in what was going on in your neighborhood, and especially with the environmental aspect? Where did that come from? Well, yeah, climate change is probably, uh, for me, like many people, it's just a really central concern for me mm-hmm. in my life, my day-to-day life. I worry about where we're going as a planet, and I see the urgency that we need to respond to this crisis with. I also see a lot of opportunity there that at the moment I don't think is being fully taken advantage of. And for me, they go hand in hand because the problem is so big that I think individual action can sometimes feel futile. And Mm -hmm. that's a problem that I know a lot of us struggle with. I don't think that's the case. I think what you do at an individual level really matters. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the problem is so big that we must have collective action in yes. order to address it. And Definitely. that's where I think um, democratic structures really have to come in and we have to have that, we have to recognize that groundswell for action and we have to act on it at the policy level. So, what got you started though? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> what that, was that's the moment? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I asked that kind of flippantly to people. I'm like, oh, what was your, your aha moment? And I, I can't answer that exactly. I say, I had to live two years in China with a destroyed ecology. And then it took me another couple of years to realize that that actually is replicable and that's a threat. Do you have any kind of a moment or a sequence of moments that kind of changed your path into this? Well, for me, I mean, once I joined the Greens, mm-hmm. I immediately started volunteering. And I guess that that was, that's kind of the tipping point moment for me was that I really felt, not to get too political here, but I really <laughs> felt that other parties weren't taking the, they were, they were saying that they recognized that there was a problem and that mm-hmm. something needed to be done about it and that climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our times, but I didn't see the action yes. matching up to the rhetoric. Yes. For me, I, you know, like what made me concerned about climate, I feel as though I actually have always had an understanding that we need to take urgent action to protect the planet and repair the damage that's been done. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up in a gen- – my, my grandparents were on a farm and mm-hmm. so we were always really water conscious when we were out there. They were dependent on tank water mm-hmm. and I'd see how a drought year would really affect sheep and wheat and it would really affect their well-being and, and life on the farm. Plus, you know, I grew up watching Captain Planet. and there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Do a lot of people say that? <laughs> no, no, but I remember it vividly, but it hasn't come up yet with anyone yeah. else. So, yeah, kindred spirits. Yeah, I will. And I do, you know, I, I just... It was just a given that this was something we had to do. It's kind of it's a civic duty and, you know, you've got to do your recycling and do what Pete Repeat says on the TV. So as a child growing up in that uh, environment, I kind of always expected that our leaders would be doing the right thing, yes. as so many people are at the individual and level. as you got older and you saw more, you realised they weren't. They weren't. That- and so then it was a bit of that... I always wish that somebody would do something, and then I realized I am somebody. There's normally a question I kind of ask at the end, but I feel like it's a good time to ask it here, is this issue, if climate change had been solved in the 90s, or even going back to the 60s, we realized that, yes, greenhouse gas emissions are 
increasing the temperature of the planet, if that had been solved then, but everything else, if you look at the window now, everything mm-hmm. else about society was the same, what would you be doing with your life? To be honest, I'd probably, well, I'm still really passionate about the arts. Mm. And I think so many of the solutions that come to social problems, to environmental problems, I think the arts and creativity is where we actually come up with new solutions to things. So I would like to think I'd still be involved with my community, you know, whether I'd be in elected capacity, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I'm really passionate about seeing new ways of thinking, new ways of expressing and telling stories to one another. So that's that's probably, I'd be working in the arts somewhere, I reckon. Probably on stage, let's be real. (laughs) I I could see that. That'd be really good. Very good. I I think that, and this doesn't probably even need to go in the episode, but it's, um, I think that question reveals a lot about people because when you get these leaders up on stage and you think, this has been your life for two decades and what would you have done with, Mm. without this cause to fight? And wouldn't that be a great scenario if we didn't have to fight it? But I think it really does help with the empathy and understanding where you're coming from and who you are. You didn't get into politics because you want to be a politician. You got into politics because there's this fight to be fought. Yes. Yeah. And, and you're a very humanistic person and expressive and that's, that's great. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you've got to, you've got to be in it for something real. Mm. Otherwise there is fight and drama in politics, but it's got to be over something. Yes. Otherwise you're just wasting everybody's time. That's right. So, you know, I do think that's, you've got to remember why you got into it. And this is, how I've been spending the last, you know, hundreds of hours of my time for the last four years listening to political podcasts. And I was realizing that this isn't over anything. I'm, this is my stories. This is my telenovela. This is my trashy yes. TV. Yeah. And it's it was just so smoke popular. and, yeah, yeah, smoke and flash and no fire. So getting on to waste, which is what this, this whole big episode we're doing is about. It's the topic you know, of the hour. It definitely. Well, and, it would be good to kind of place this situation because when I, I arrived in Melbourne in December 2016 and there was kind of no kind of foreboding signs in the horizon. Everyone was, yeah, there was recycling bins. Everything seemed to be running fine. And then what happened? Can you give us sort of a primer on just what's changed? So the most immediate recent thing that has changed is that China has stated now definitively that it will no longer be accepting low-grade or highly contaminated recycling loads. Mm -hmm. And that has had an impact on our local recycling collection and disposal uh, and processing because a lot of waste that was being generated in Australia was was being shipped off to China for processing. Because it was low-grade or highly contaminated. Yeah, and because of the features of the waste we're exporting, it's that's no longer a viable destination for it. Mm-hmm. So now we've got recycling that we don't have a home for. Yes. Yet. Okay. And it's being treated in different ways in different places around the country. Some places like here in Port Phillip, we still have a viable contract because we've got a local processing facility that it goes to. Mm-hmm. So I want to say that very clearly. If you're in Port Phillip, keep recycling because it's still going and being processed. But in other places, it's being stockpiled in landfills in some cases and being kept separately, hoping that we'll find a solution to get processing again. So that's what's happened. And now is the sort of framing question for what we're doing with this episode is, with the China ban in place, is this a disaster or is it an opportunity? And you sort of run through the the fact that 
it's been a short-term disaster. You know, we haven't seen all of a sudden radical innovation or investment in how to deal with our recycling ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a big question. So maybe we can break into a couple different parts. Um, so the problem was China wasn't taking one of our waste streams, but the, if they were taking the others, so high-grade plastics, sort of PET bottles, your, your Coke bottles, Sprite bottles, and that's about all the jargon I know. So that's about <laughs> the end of my technical knowledge. Good, good. Um, is it simply a, a cost problem or a sorting problem in time and logistics to say that, okay, if our waste stream, here's a hundred percent of it. If 50% of it, we can't send to China anymore. The other 50, is it sort of separating out? Cause it's all going in the one recycling bin. You picture your recycling bin on the street. If you put in a, a food wrapper of, you know, soft plastic covered in sticky rice and barbecue sauce mm. and a high quality bottle, is it the, the time to split those out? It's simply, too much of a cost for councils with their waste contractors renegotiating. I'm getting into the weeds here way too quick. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's, it's surprisingly complex yes. when you think about it, yep. you know, and I think this is one of the problems is that for a lot of people, when it comes to your rubbish, out of sight is out of mind. Yes. Uh, so we don't think about where it goes after it's not in our hand or our house anymore. And that's, that's kind of part of the problem. So, look, in an ideal world, and let's start with that because I think let's. it's always good to start with the principles. I really think it would be great if, as a society, we were much better at taking responsibility for the waste we create mm-hmm. and not relying on – in some in some circumstances, maybe it would be efficient and effective for it to be, you know, to go to an offshore location and be processed. But there's a lot of costs in transporting goods, Yes. And, they, and they, you know, we get plastic for, yeah, yeah, exactly. All the way through the manufacturing process, there are these costs. And then there's the, the impacts of it being the product being shipped out here. I think ideally what we'd like to see is that we grow our local processing capacity to the point that we actually have really quite sophisticated processing systems in Australia and, and locally here in Victoria so that we can go through and collect the resources that are contained in this waste stream and get the value out of them. I think that that is a much better solution than just sort of continuing to ship things off. And as we saw, like people have been very surprised, I think, with uh, some of the stories that came out of the, the chases war on waste about it's not, you know, it's not necessarily being taken care of. Not at all. You know the stories of the Queensland mine shafts being mm, filled with rubbish, interstate trucking. And yeah, yeah. All the horror stories. Yeah. So, is it a disaster? Is it an opportunity? Out of crisis comes opportunity, and mm-hmm. often, often out of crisis comes the impetus to act. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're at a really crucial point now where we must take the opportunity. The alternative is not acceptable. We can't just continue polluting it the rate we are and we also can't let these really valuable resources metals and plastics and all of those things mm-hmm. can't let them yes. go to waste that's right those, those aren't waste they're inputs and something else exactly in fact i really hate the term waste mm, absolutely <laughs> but resource recovery sounds even less sexy so it really does <laughs> um, maybe that's a really good time to bring up the question of how do you feel about sort of the waste to energy solutions being proposed waste to energy is a very broad term Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing people should understand is that there are a lot of technologies within the waste to energy spectrum and they go all the way from some really beneficial things like anaerobic digestion Mm -hmm. where you're putting in organic matter and collecting uh, the gas 
that's generated from its decomposition and then also getting a valuable output, which is often like a compost or fertilizer. We actually have a wonderful Gaia machine at the South Melbourne market. If people want to see that, there's footage um, that explains that online, which basically collects the market waste and turns it into these amazing compost that then gets sold at the market. So people can go and pick up um, some really, really, really nutrient-rich soil as an output. So that's one form of waste to energy, but it does go all the way through to incineration. And that's taking residual waste and setting it on fire. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the technology within that waste to energy spectrum we should really, really be embracing because it's taking stuff that's currently just going to landfill and turning it into a really useful product. But you've got to be really careful with incineration because one, it's not recycling. So know. if there's any valuable material in there, it's, it's gone. Yep. And you're only left with the harmful. Two, um, there are, there can be really toxic materials in residual waste. And so there's always the question of what happens with the emissions from that process. And the third and, and probably most problematic concern for me is that out of sight, out of mind thing. There can actually be a really perverse disincentive to recycle from incineration mm-hmm. because it's just gone. And it's, it's easier, um, right. in it's some ways cheaper, to dispose of. Yeah. Exactly. Recycling gets cheaper the more you do it as you ramp up the efficiencies and the economies of scale. But yeah, it was the same goes with incineration. And if they're able to come at a lower price point than the current recycling stream, then yeah, that the perverse set of incentives. Yeah. So that's my thoughts on it. And, and I think we really need to be focusing on one, creating less waste in the first place mm-hmm. and two, recovering the valuable resources. And making sure we've done a good job of that. I think if incineration is the answer, you're kind of asking the wrong question. Definitely. That was a really good recycling of my question. Oh. And you salvaged <laughs> it very well. And I'm sorry for the pun as well. So I love it. So people, people like faceyourwaste.com ah, sort of yeah. out, out west. I, I just, honestly, I wasn't even thinking about them as prepping for the interview today. I just scrolling through my Facebook feed and I've at least trained Facebook to give me some, some useful stuff. Face Your Waste is doing this clear bin initiative, at least in some of the um, the Western Australian councils. How do you think about that idea of confronting people that to overcome this? Once I put it in a bin and close the lid, it's gone. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it it helps people realize, yeah, how much waste is being generated. It's also really good in terms of like I can imagine for our workers going around and emptying the bins. Like that would make it a lot easier to just have passive surveillance of when that bin's getting full and needs to be emptied. There's lots and lots of benefits to it. And one other thing I'd be interested to see if it produces is less contamination in recycling. So it is a little bit of that like, oh, other people can see my, you know, my PET bottle in the rubbish. Hopefully it would lead to people to be a little bit more conscious um, with their disposal of waste as well. So I think it's really positive. Yeah, it's definitely one worth following and, and seeing what the results are like and is that the kind of thing well there's so many questions in here i want to get to and I'm all, uh, <laughs> we got time <laughs> quickly back to the the gaia machine which is an yes. amazing name oh gosh, don't ask market. me too many technicals no, about no it. <laughs> not at all i'm just gonna just quickly say that i'm actually i've got involved with the community garden recently and uh, yeah. just next to south melbourne town hall yep. and i will be picking up some of that compost in the next couple of days and spreading it out so we'll have a, a link to that video you just talked about in the show notes and I, I encourage everyone else to take a look at it i'm looking forward to that as well great so We've sort of looked at 
that's the reason actually sort of face for waste came up. They have, you know, this, this hierarchy of, you know, here's the most preferential thing to do or just reduce the amount of waste you're producing. And then all the way down to uh, reclamation of of energy or reclamation of, of materials from it. And then, and then finally refuse, you know, recycling comes ahead of recovery Mm. because I think recovery is not a one-to-one ratio at all. You're, you're losing a lot more in that conversion. Yep. Even of great recovery. Gaia is great an example of, of waste to a brand new product, but recycling itself is a great industry to be investing in here for us. Yes. We need to invest more in our recycling infrastructure in Australia. What is the argument against it that you come across the most? And sort of, is it, does it have any legs at all? I mean, yeah, I, I haven't come across too many arguments against it. I think there's been a lack of political will. So it's prioritization and yes. funding. Yep, exactly. And I Those think are solvable. Um, oh, it's, it's eminently solvable. And in fact, the federal Greens have really, in the last week or so, seen this opportunity that is presented by the current set of circumstances and launched a really big push to reboot recycling. Now, there's so many arguments for it. So not only does it have the environmental benefits, but this is an industry that could provide heaps of jobs. Mm-hmm. It's a chance for us to pilot world-leading technology in Australia. And I think there's heaps of educational potential in visiting, you know, in schools and so on, coming to some of these processing plants. They're actually really fascinating places. Oh, definitely. I love going to the tip as a kid. Yeah, yeah it's exciting, right? So... I think there's just so many arguments for it. I struggle to see arguments against it that mm-hmm. have weight. I really think it comes down to the cost. Mm-hmm. Some people might say it's more efficient or easier to, to ship it offshore or that we don't have the capacity here. I just think we've got to develop it. We've got to invest in it. And it's our society being what it is, it's an industry that's going to have a pretty viable future. Once you get machinery and the technical knowledge established, mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to be the really good. Costs. Yeah. So paid and yeah, yeah. infrastructures in place. Yeah. Very good. How about in terms of say the, the clear bins? Is that something that's within the power of Portfolio Council to do? I was just waiting to, to come in to see you and I saw that, you know, we've got a plastic bag ban in place at South Melbourne Market. Yeah. So that was something that was in control of Portfolio Council because you control South Melbourne Market. The that's market, yeah. The yeah. market council has a governance role in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got an independent board, but. Because it's, yeah, council, like public property, mm-hmm. we can, it's a nice controlled space to, yes. Yes, <laughs> to launch an initiative like that. And it's very well used and utilized by our community and also by visitors. So it's actually a great place to launch a cultural change program like that. Mm-hmm. And people, like honestly, people do want to use reusable bags. It's just that sometimes even, you know, even I forget them. Um, right. And we have a great community group, Boomerang Bags, who uh, produce reusable bags that you can use while you're shopping and then return. So it's just about putting those things in place that support people to make the, cho- the, the better choice, not using a plastic bag. So I, I know it gets a little complicated with waste because there's waste contractors involved and mm. it's multi-year contracts and there's only so much say once that contract's in place by council over what they do. Yeah. So something like... Uh, and I'm not maybe it's a, it's a bad example, but to use clear bins as just an example of what do you have power over now, and would how would the dynamic change if the community overwhelmingly wanted that? How could we get that? 
Well, in terms of starting a community campaign, if people are interested in that sort of thing, we get petitions and joint letters regularly. They get sent through usually to the mayor and councillors and they'll actually be tabled. The letter or petition will be tabled at a council meeting. Council will formally receive it. And then our officers go away and look at the request in the letter or petition and see what, what the organisational change would have to be to implement it. And then they come back to us with a recommendation. So that's a really common way mm-hmm. that community ideas come through to council and we really welcome that. In terms of just like our day-to-day and operational things that we'd have to take into consideration with like a clear bin proposal, mm-hmm. I th- assume you're kind of talking about public bins, yes. not people's curbside bin. No. I think like no. for one, the, yeah, the truck bins, has yeah. to be able to pick it up. Yes, definitely. <laughs> there is that aspect. Like if it's going to be, it would depend if it was going to be manually collected by a person like the ones you see at the train station where you yes. just pull the bag out yep. or if it's one that has to be picked up by a truck and plonked into the truck. That's one thing. Another would probably be amenity. You like you talk about the arguments against for for some people in the community they wouldn't want to see rubbish. Yes. Like that's right. that, that's well, a big concern of people, so exactly. Yeah, that's right. So we'd probably have to work around that. But I think if you can make a really good case about the positive mm-hmm. impacts that this change would make, then people might be much more willing to accept it and see the benefit that comes. And the other thing that we'd have to think about, I mean, we are constantly trying to update in this space. Yeah, we're very, very conscious with 11 kilometres of foreshore, we actually see a lot of the problems of littering, mm-hmm. the, things that either get left on the beach and, you know, we have trucks and, and, and tractors that clean the beaches basically on a daily schedule. Uh, but things also wash out through the waterways and mm-hmm. get washed up on the foreshore. So we see that end of it as well. Uh, that's so that's Tim's very... fault, right? Coming from Canal Ward. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> darn, darn cross ward. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so we're very conscious of that sort of thing and we're very keen to try new technology. And we actually have some of the big belly bins that you might have heard about. No. So these are being trialled at the moment in a few key locations where we have high-trafficked areas mm-hmm. where people are generating a lot of waste just because they're there having picnics, eating, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. These are the solar-powered bins that have a compacting function. Ah, uh, yes. So they can actually hold, I think it's seven times more than your normal bin before they need to be emptied. So we are constantly looking for ways to make sure that the litter actually gets captured and disposed of correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and innovations around bins are, yeah, that's cool. You're, <laughs> part of that space. You are the waste guru. Uh, you do get excited about, you know, novel bin design. That's really cool. Just all of bins. It's everything I love. <laughs> that's maybe a more interesting aspect than, you know, I'm talking about clear bins, which is a, a new thing. And it's all the way out in Western Australia. No offense to any Western Australian <laughs> listeners, but, uh, it's definitely something to look at when we get more results in. But, yeah. but these big belly bins, that's super important then to have the waste sources separated properly, right? Because recovery for recycling, once it's compacted, is going to be much harder. I'm not imagining it comes out as a as a cube of rubbish at the back end. Like imagine from the movie Wally, actually there's this this <laughs> yes. trash compactor, right? It's dropped down. Perfectly cube shaped yeah. rubbish. Look, no, I haven't seen what it looks like when it comes out when it's squashed. We are actually there there are steps to investigate whether we can with with a high quality processing facility, I think you can overcome that. And mm-hmm. I know in some jurisdictions 
they have moved towards just a single bin. Mm-hmm. So rather than relying on residents sort of separation, to, yeah, 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 at the at the source, then you can actually with mechanical and human sorters mm-hmm. get quite good results. I think we don't currently operate that system in Port Phillip mm-hmm. yet. So I I think that that would be an issue. If you've got stuff that's in there that's not meant to be in there, yes. that should be in the recycling, it might. It might be hard to recover. Mm. But we're trialling them and I think I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing when that comes back. Yeah, you know, the, so the am I. I'll have to, have to come used. back in yeah. and sort of go over that report with you so you can explain it to me because I want to understand it. <laughs> that's, and then with um, with organic waste as well. So if mm. organic waste is putting put into that bin, you're going to have a much well, – Quickly, the advantage is if it can hold seven times the amount as a normal bin, it needs only one seventh of the pickups. So that's that's right. So seven, less truck movement. That's right. Yep, yep. Seven times less, a seventh as many <laughs> trucks. That's brilliant. That's some really awesome sort of concrete things. I've got a question here specifically about sort of organic waste. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this guy uh, Jerry Gillespie. He was in ACT, and they had a, a net zero waste scheme. It was a few years back, and they were only. It was quite ambitious. It was meant to have been done by now, but they were sort of three or four years into it, a couple of years before completion, and the plan got scrapped. It's very interesting to do a post-mortem with Jerry about that on what could have been done better. Um, but he's now got an initiative called City to Soil, and it's all about getting as much organic waste from the cities back out to rural farmland as possible because he's really ringing the alarm on, on soil depletion here in Australia. Wow, yeah. So... I was just curious, from your perspective with Port Phillip, I know you're trying a lot of exciting stuff with South Melbourne Market. How much of that can be sort of rolled out to the broader community or what else is on the cards mm. with organic waste? Yeah, and it's a really tricky one to solve, um, particularly because of the mix of housing stock in Port Phillip. So we have some areas that are really uh, – we have a really established apartment living areas in the city and we also have some areas that are much kind of more traditional suburban detached housing and those two kinds of housing actually have that one they generate hugely different amounts of green waste if we're going to add in garden waste as well so apartments like like mine sadly it's me where i kill (laughs) plants regularly (laughs) apart from all the succulents i have to throw out because i killed them so apartments generate a lot less garden waste and we have, there is great demand in Port Phillip for a green waste service, but this mm-hmm. has been one of the challenges for us is making it work um, because we have these vastly different households. Mm-hmm. So the things that we do have, which are really positive, yes, the Gaia machine has been really successful at South Melbourne Market, and I think that that's a great piece of technology. I think that this, it'd be great if we were to collect organic waste from some other businesses in the area, for example. Mm-hmm. That's something I'd love to see happen. We also do have some community compost drop-off points. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple that I'm aware of. There's at the Eco Centre in St Kilda in Blessington Street near the Botanic or in the Botanic Gardens. They have a community compost drop-off. And uh, at my community garden that I have a little plot at as well in uh, Dank Street, at the, out the back of the Mary Kehoe Centre. So there are some places that people can dispose of compost, but this is definitely an area where I think we're still looking for the answer. And that's probably a really good time for me to mention that Council is actually looking at waste reclama- waste and resource reclamation as a priority, and we're actually doing a new waste strategy, which I hope will get lots of feedback from the community about what they want to see done and ideas for how we should implement it. 
One thing that we'll probably be investigating as part of that is within new multi-unit dwellings, so big apartment buildings, whether we have incinerators installed in those so that people can get rid of their organics without it going into landfill. There's some really big and exciting prospects in there and I hope that it's one of the things we can put a little bit more attention on because I agree, I don't think we've quite solved that problem in cities yet. There's a lot of stuff going to landfill, particularly organics, that just shouldn't be in there. Quick question, and not to sound really dumb, but this is actually a question I, I realized I didn't know I had until it's right now. It's an important one to ask then. It is. Because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very familiar with incinerators. You know, you've got... You get the, the blades sitting just underneath your sink plug and it'll sort of shred any organic material. And as a kid, you feel like it's going to eat you if you come close yes. to the sink. <laughs> that waste material you send through, that does get reclaimed in the, the water treatment process. So, yeah, the idea with them, I believe, is that they go into the black water pipe. Mm-hmm. So for processing with the other organic wastes that households produce. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Okay, system. but that's yeah, all yeah. potential inputs for other agricultural uses or just other uses. Yeah, that's right. There's a huge waste stream there that I think um, there's probably some very innovative uses for. Yeah, definitely. That would be really exciting. So when we were talking about, you were talking about the hierarchy of reclamation and I think we we didn't really touch on reuse, which is Mm. a really important one of people donating unwanted goods and one thing local governments can do and some do a great job of is having a functional like repair cafe. Mm-hmm. We do have one in Port Phillip that meets at the Eco Center monthly. And so I think you can find out information about that on the Eco Center website, but also tip shops where, where you get things that people are disposing of that are still in good enough quality that someone else might want it. So mm-hmm. there's that sort of stuff as well, but taking a step back, the really big thing we need to confront about waste is that we are just actually using too much stuff. And particularly when it comes to plastic, so much of it is actually unnecessary. So there is a huge thing for us to do. We should be concentrating on recycling and we should be concentrating on reuse, but we should also just be critical about the amount of plastic that we're consuming these days Overseas, there's already been steps towards curbing single-use plastics, excessive packaging, things like microbeads in cosmetics, which, like, frankly, I don't even think they work that well. (laughs) I have no opinion. Give me a walnut scrub any day. You know, so there is so much plastic that's just in our consumption stream because that's where we're at in society these days. And I don't think that that's something that consumers have actually asked for, and I don't think that that's something that people actually want You're starting to see this groundswell of people, you know, there's been some fantastic actions where communities have gone shopping together and then in the supermarket car park, taken off all the unnecessary wrapping and and just given it back to the supermarket. I think it's really important for governments to start looking at legislating to ensure that that waste doesn't occur where it doesn't need to. So Mm -hmm. excessive packaging and single-use plastics where we don't need them. They've just banned straws, plastic straws, I think, in the UK. Like there's, Mm -hmm. you know, where there are so many ready alternatives. The problem with plastic is that, of course, it never actually breaks down. It just breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces when it gets into our oceans, it's actually now entering the food chain because it gets eaten by marine life. And so people are actually, you know, we're at a point where plastic saturation is so bad, it's actually 
you know, in our diets now. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge part of it. And I think we really need, the Victorian Greens have got a bill in Parliament, private members bill to end single use excessive packaging. And so I really think that that's something that governments need to be having a serious conversation about. We need to move towards a circular economy where we're responsible for our, for the waste that we generate. Mm-hmm. Individuals, but also corporations. And there's so much plastic now that people don't actually want. If we can limit the amount that's actually being produced, then we'll go a long way to solving some of the pressures on this crisis. That's right. So that was just a bit of the piece that I wanted to get in there. No, that was perfect. (laughs) Because I think that's where the current conversation isn't going far enough. It's not just about treating this this waste that we've got and that we keep generating it's about like making less as well yeah that's true Mm. and that actually i I didn't mention at all you know your your recent facebook post about your walk along the beach within 20 minutes here's what you picked up how have you kind of started to apply this stuff to your own life and what's something like maybe i could take away like what's something that you're doing that maybe in your own quest to reduce plastic at home what was maybe the easiest thing you changed what was maybe something that's a bit more difficult you said yourself you know sometimes you do go shopping and you didn't plan on it or you forgot to bring a bag yes yeah i've done the the walk home with everything with an arm what's that been like for you trying to incorporate this into your daily life yeah well i'll just preface it by saying i think individual action is great Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't let governments and corporations push this back on the individual we do actually need systemic change but if you want to make a difference in your own life, there's so many quick and easy things. Getting yourself a reusable coffee cup for a start and just having one or two of those that live in your handbag or in your car. Water bottles that are reusable. It's not just signaling. It's no, it makes a big old. difference. <laughs> exactly. Like I think of the number of coffees I drink a week. And the problem with coffee cups is they're not easy to recycle. So you will actually be keeping a lot of stuff out of landfill if you make a change like that. And there's so many reusable products now that are really convenient and often they're really nice as well. The beeswax food wrappers instead of cling film and and glad wrap. There's like reusable straws that just fold up and you can keep it in your handbag. So making little changes like that, and, yeah, you will have days where you forget it, but you'll probably remember it mm-hmm. <laughs> if you've got a better memory than me at least half the time. That's right. And it does make a big difference. So those are probably some of the easiest ones, I reckon. Very good. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank Kat. you That's so great. much. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> it's really great. I can't wait to hear it. And that was Cat Copsey. I'm sure you'll agree it was a fascinating interview. A lot in there. Thanks very much, Mark. That was fantastic. My absolute pleasure, Rich. And I look forward to uh, having more from Cat next week in our Waste Special. So now we'll have some credits here for you. Greg Grossi, our amazing composer, thank you so much for this great new theme. Yes. Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. Caleb Fidicaro, our fantastic producer. Yes, he got a promotion. Hold your applause. <laughs> He's at Hipster Jazzbo on Twitter. Don't ask me why. Abby Hawkins, our intrepid designer. Uh, look out for great photos soon of the climactic logo on a t-shirt, a hoodie, and a cake. <laughs> Check out her work and hire her at abigailhawkins.com. Yes. And finally, Gretchen 
our key advisor and resident goat whisperer. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, folks. And we'll see you next week for our big waste special. Thanks for listening.